Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J. Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, reporting to you live from lab. Your pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher, that is. And this is Praz the Sandman, as always, numbing your senses through the radio waves every day. <laughs> oh, we could use some good numbing these days. Oh, we so all? good. Well, guys, this is a very exciting day for all of us. Do you know why? This oh. is... Uh, did, did we... Did we pass like a milestone, Dr. Josh? We did pass a milestone, Santosh. Oh, it is. And a milestone. This is our 100th episode. Come on now. Whoa. Oh, yeah. If you count up all the episodes, ignoring my really weird numbering until I got it fixed this year. <laughs> Guys, even Doctor Who had to start somewhere. Okay, come on now. <laughs> there you go. You have Doctor Who, what, and why. <laughs> Well, I'm certainly glad to be a part of the milestone to have made the last, what, 10 episodes possible? Or some people would call me a hero. (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm with you. I'm with you. So, gentlemen, I thought for our 100th episode, it might be fun to see how far we've come. And that's why this episode is going to be dedicated to diseases that have been eradicated, eliminated, and or endangered. Eradicate. Thanks, Doctor Who! (laughs) Let's go back to a few months ago. Remember how nice it was a few months ago? There was a big announcement way back in September of 2016 that measles had been eliminated in the Americas. Yeah, that's true. Really? Wasn't there just a recent outbreak of measles within the last couple of years? Why, Praz, I'm glad you asked! Yay. <laughs> what about what about that measles outbreak at Disneyland? You know, or or people still getting measles in the Americas? How can it be eliminated? Yeah, that's uh, well. What's the definition of eradication? What's the deal with eradication? Doesn't eliminate mean completely get rid of something? For instance, when you eliminate twerking from your life, you don't just do it anymore, or smoking, or saying YOLO. <laughs> So let's let's talk about what the definitions are within the world of public health about eradication, elimination, and control, which sounds like a really good opening for some rap song. Oh, yeah. Let's start with the term disease control. Control just means reducing disease. Whether it's the frequency or the impact of the disease, you just want to reduce it to an acceptable level. Okay, so no one is going to say that Zika is controlled because it's still spreading all over the place. The flu, definitely not under control. That's like the opposite of under control. Mm -hmm. (laughs) But mad cow disease, probably under control in the U.S. There's cases every now and again, but you're not running into people every other day 
who are getting mad cow disease. Right. Okay? So disease control means it's at an acceptable level. It's still happening, but we're not seeing it all that often. The next step up is known as elimination. Elimination means there's no new cases of the disease in a specific geographic region. So the disease could still be out in the world. It could still be circulating and infecting people, but new cases aren't occurring. A perfect example of this or analogy for this would be Seinfeld. New episodes of Seinfeld have been eliminated. There's old Seinfeld episodes floating around, but there are no more new Seinfeld episodes coming out. So... Previously, the only other disease that I could give as an example of something that had been eliminated in the U.S. is neonatal tetanus. People still get tetanus, but there have been no babies born with tetanus in America really for as long as I can possibly remember. Sure, sure. Oh. I think that's a beautiful example, actually. Yeah, no, I didn't uh, that So that's, that's elimination of disease. Uh, elimination of infections... And that's where we are with measles, means no new infections are occurring like measles in the Americas, meaning the infectious pathogen no longer regularly circulates around the population, finding people to infect. Uh, let's think of it this way. Imagine that the measles virus is a fan of who's a nice non, non-controversial figure I could use. Let's say Carrot Top. Oh, okay? Carrot Top's a good one. So think of the measles virus as a fan of Carrot Top who's looking around Las Vegas to get a hotel room, Yeah. okay? Vaccination is filling up all the hotel rooms so the Carrot Top fan can't find a room and they have to give up and leave Vegas. But the key with vaccinations, you have to keep those hotels full or Carrot Top fans may sneak back in and Carrot Top may be able to keep appearing, uh, reappearing downtown. So remember, no. measles is still circulating. <laughs> So, measles is still circulating in other parts of the world, and it only takes one infection to visit America, and if not enough people are vaccinated, measles is back and will spread. This is probably what happened when we had the Disneyland outbreak. Somebody goes to visit Disneyland who wasn't vaccinated, and they visited and interacted with other people who hadn't been vaccinated, and those people got infected and caused a brief outbreak. All right. But by and large, there are no new infections naturally occurring in the Americas, not just the United States, but North, South, and Central America. Gotcha. Now, the, now, the last step is eradication. This is a big one. When you eradicate a disease, it no longer exists naturally in the world. Eradication means you don't have to vaccinate against the disease. You don't have to worry about prevention, control, or treatment measures. The only two diseases to date that have been completely eradicated thus far, smallpox was eradicated in 1980 and now only exists in supervillain labs uh, or research centers, and another one, which wasn't even a human infection, known as rinderpest eradication, occurred in 2010. Now, that was a infection of cloven-hooved animals, so cows, livestock, and even giraffes. Thanks to the concentrated efforts of the World Health Organization and multiple medical practitioners, we've eradicated smallpox, we've eradicated rinderpest, and we're close to a couple other disease eradications, certainly in our lifetime, if not this year. So now let's talk a little bit about We'll start with measles. So measles has been eliminated. Now that you understand the difference, Santosh, you want to talk to us a little bit more about this? When you say eliminated, like because we did have a recent outbreak, how long do we have to wait before we can say it's limited? Like three months, a year? From the most recent new case to like how long do you have to have not, not have any new cases? before you? Well, let me give you a couple a couple numbers. I, I'm afraid I personally don't have the exact timeline when they decide. That really relies on uh, publicly released statistics by the World Health Organization and the CDC. Okay. But in terms of eliminated diseases from the Americas, measles would be the fifth vaccine-preventable disease. So smallpox was eradicated in 1971. Polio was eliminated in 1994. Rubella and congenital rubella in 2015. So we really only have started making headway very recently yeah, yeah, in the terms are, of time. Wow. Right, right. So it, it was kind of a leap 
there there was a long time, you know, 30, 20 something odd years between the time that we eliminated smallpox and then came all the way to all these other viral infections. So to give you an idea of the numbers, if you go back and you look at publicly available documents, before mass vaccinations started in the 1980s, measles on average caused about two and a half million deaths annually worldwide. And in the Americas, about 101,000 deaths from 1970 to 1980, okay? As of 2015, globally, only 244,000 measles cases were reported. So from 1980, 2.5 million, to 2015, 244,000. Okay, so that's how we measure. Now, when we look at specific regions, we say if no country has had, you know, over the course of the last however many months or year, there's no endemic cases, meaning new cases that start in the country rather than being brought to it. Mm -hmm. A disease is listed as endangered and a potential candidate for elimination. So talk us through why this is so exciting. Like, you know, what does it really mean for us that measles has been eliminated right so you know we're we're definitely in a much more global world than we were when smallpox is around which means for the sake of infectious diseases that things have a much much better time traveling around but in in this particular case what it means for us for measles to be eliminated it take care of the very real problem of complications from you know, measles turning into pneumonia, measles turning into uh, SSPE later on in life, which is when you get horrible brain disease because the virus decides to come back and cause some pretty massive problems. We have disease, the disease itself, which can cause very bad problems. If you, if you keep it eliminated, you keep it from circulating it endemically, within a particular area. That means that we can feel safe that people who travel from our little part of the world and go out to Asia, Africa, etc., are a little better protected against uh, getting sick from these illnesses. Are you going to have someone new come in and wreck all of your progress? <laughs> or are you going to have the disease start to pop up again because we under-vaccinate. So all these are things that we do have to think about. And so we work pretty hard to get to where we are right now, but what you're saying is that everything that we've achieved can be lost very easily simply because of a couple of individuals. Even one person could change everything. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And it's kind of scary to think about, but that's exactly right. Yeah, you can... You can totally mess up the, the progress that you have going. Just because this is absolutely a one bad apple can spoil the barrel. There you go. <laughs> I think that's a great way to put it. But I, I don't want a fruit shame. <laughs> because why should we blame apples for occasional worms? And, oh, look, what a hastily constructed attempt to segue into the next disease. <laughs> I like it. I enjoyed it. It was it was a good segue. So now that we've talked about a disease that's been eliminated, and if you'd like to hear more about what measles is and actually does, we have previous episodes on it, and I do encourage you to go back and listen to them. Moving on to our next one, we've talked about an eliminated disease, but now there is one disease that is very, very old and endangered and potentially almost ready to be eradicated. I'm excited about this. Wow. I'm happy about it. So this is going to be close to the second ever global eradication of a human disease. And even more impressively, this disease is going to be eradicated without vaccines or even medication at all. Mm. It's pretty cool. I'm excited. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, so you may be wondering what disease I could possibly be talking about. And, of course, that would be the disease known as Draconculus medinensis, or the little dragon of Medina, 
or more commonly, the guinea worm. Guinea. Now, Santosh, you're our infectious disease guy, pediatric infectious disease doc and researcher. Why don't you tell us, for, for those listening at home, what is the guinea worm? Oh, the guinea worm is one of the most evil little... Oh, I hate this thing so much. So when we think about diseases that you really want to eradicate, we, of course, think of deadly diseases first, things that are uh, on the forefront of our imaginations here, saying measles can cause horrible brain damage. Smallpox will kill you. Not so with this worm. It's not a worm that you would think of like uh, a little earthworm or something like that. The part that infects us or the life cycle, life state that infects us is a little larvae. You can barely see it. Like a lot of parasitic worms, you ingest it, it gets in, and then it decides to migrate as a, as a juvenile out into your subcutaneous tissues. That means that it's under the skin. So this is the true like kind of burrowing, ugly, disgusting parasite that we all think about when we talk about hating parasites. This, this is not a fatal disease. This is not one of these diseases that we go after because it's going to cause horrible, you know, disability in your brain or, or inability to live. This is straight up... Gross. It's, yeah. It's, yeah, that's... It's just it, gross. It's just that's, disgusting. <laughs> it's a good photo op disease. It's not going to kill anyone, yeah. but it is horrifying so to see. I think I'm going to have yeah. nightmares now. Worms crawl yeah, yeah. In so, <laughs> yeah, yeah, and and this is the this is the reason why we we really get you know peeved about this because it's just a bother, you know. Now it will cause the kind of disability where the uh, you know everyone involved they can't uh, walk, they can't uh, you know go about their daily uh, business really, and so it, it can really be an impairment. But it's really not the kind of thing we think about when we say, you know, watch out, you know, this will kill you. Um, that being said, the degree of disability that it causes and the, the big deal, which is that it can spread out, you know, it can get into water as soon as someone feels an itching, burning sensation in their foot and they just want to relieve it and they put their foot in water and you're, you're left with guinea worm in the in the water which somebody else will drink so now you're the worm is spreading itself and causing more disability and more disability and more disability so that's the issue that we we end up with um, so you can actually take out entire populations with this guinea worm so here guys I, I have to stop you because I don't know which way to go I have one. I have two really fun things, historical things we can talk about with this guinea worm. Well, why don't we go chronologically? Let's start with the beginning and go forward to the future. Okay. So if we go all the way back into ancient times, the guinea worm, its Latin name, that one I told you, the little dragon of Medina, actually dates all the way back to biblical times. And if you look in the Bible and they talk about uh, Moses brought his people to the city of Medina and they were attacked by fiery serpents. Close study of these are believed to essentially be, are thought to be guinea worms. And similarly, the traditional staff of medicine, not the caduceus, not the double-winged staff, but the staff with a single, but the staff with a single snake wound around it that you see on the side of ambulances and on many emergency medical uh, paramedic personnel. Uh-huh. That snake wound around a staff is actually thought not to be a snake at all, but a representation of a guinea worm. Huh. Because, and most because, you might think to yourself, why would a, a snake wound around a staff represent to people doctor like oh my gosh i'm sick well here comes the guy with a snake on a staff you know he's the one to turn to for answers <laughs> um, but in fact it has to do with how the disease is treated santosh do you know how you treat guinea worm uh the truth of the matter is i do i've never done it 
Um, but I want to just provide a kind of uh, how do you what, what should we say a a, um, a warning for everybody right now because you might not like what you hear, people. Okay, so if if you have soft of stomach, please walk away. <laughs> The way that you treat this is actually to take a stick, okay? You find where the worm comes out. You wrap very gently the, the exposed part of the worm around the stick. And you twist the stick a little bit every day. <laughs> like you're rolling up a really disgusting piece of spaghetti. Exactly. And, and you want to keep going and going and going until uh, the whole worm is out. <laughs> and that's how you fix it. Well, <laughs> and you end up with a long worm wound around a stick, which was probably the earliest method of treating this disease centered in the Middle East, which is why it may have come up in the Bible. And seeing people being treated for this, they might know that others would get similar medical knowledge and training, and over time, a simple parasitic infection has come to be the actual logo of the medical profession. There you go. So, again, just to kind of briefly go over the life cycle, it's found in infected water, all right? It's too small to notice. People are going to be in third world countries, in Africa, in the Middle East, and they're going to drink it, and these worms will get inside them. The worm will grow larger and larger, up to about as large as 80 centimeters, for those of you who use the metric system. Yep. And that's a pretty long worm. Oh, yeah, yeah. It's enormous. (laughs) And Almost three feet. Yeah, and as it gets to that full growth size, it begins to reproduce, and... When it's ready to give birth, it starts wriggling through your skin and releasing a special sort of acid that burns its way through your muscle and skin, causing these horribly burning blisters. And people will do anything to relieve that pain, usually which is just dunking the the affected limb in the nearest water. And what does that do? Releases a whole cloud of these new worms to start the cycle again. So the main way this is treated is, one, for an individual worm, you have to wind it slowly. You can't just rip it out like a piece of loose thread on a sweater because if you tear the worm's body in half, most worms are capable of reproducing uh, via mitosis. Yeah. And they will grow. And even if you don't do that, now you're still left with a half-infected pregnant worm and a major opening serving as a source for infection. So you run into more problems if you try and do this quickly. This is the epitome of... Patience in patience. (laughs) I love it. So that's why. So, the main way that this is being treated around the world, primarily by the Carter Foundation, is by providing water filtration. You give people drinking straws or you clean up their water supplies so the worm larva can't ever be ingested. And because they can only reproduce in the human body, If they can't reproduce, you don't have more cases. So this is going to be one of the first diseases that could potentially be eliminated without vaccines, without medicine, and it's an ideal candidate for eradication because it's only transmitted by this one route, by drinking. So if this can be interrupted, infection can be stopped. So people are going around, and the plan is you educate villagers in affected areas, you distribute water filters that people can use to eliminate the parasites. And this is a steel mesh filter that can be carried around and used. You know, you can make it for about 10 bucks. Now, let's move a little bit more forward into the future. And, Proz, did you ever watch the movie Alien? I believe I did, although it's been a little while. What would you say is one of the most iconic scenes from Alien in your memory? Huh. Um, you know, I'll have to defer that one to Santosh. Uh, from Alien? Uh, I think easily when uh, the, the facehugger just jumped up. Oh, that facehugger. For me, it was always the chest burster. Oh, yeah, when he came out of Jamie Farr's chest. Right, so there's a scene in Alien where all of them are just sitting around enjoying some good victory times, and 
One of the gentlemen starts screaming and clutches at his chest, collapses, and a little alien bursts out of his chest. And this has been parodied and done. Well, that scene was inspired by our guinea worm. Because, (laughs) again, when you have the only way that this thing gets out of you is to straight up burrow through your skin and pop out. And it can pop out in the leg. It can pop out in the arm. The Carter Foundation started treating this when during the 80s, a trip to Ghana horrified President Jimmy Carter when he saw a young woman holding a baby in her arms that wasn't a baby. It was a worm coming out of her right breast. Whoa. Uh-huh. Yeah. That, that would, that so would from, from deep in biblical times all the way up to the far distant xenomorph future, the guinea worm has been associated with medicine for a long, long time. And the idea that we may finally eradicate this disease is very exciting. Now, this is not all fun and games because I hear the cries of a thousand veterinarians shouting out, but wait, and that is because the reason we thought we were so close to eradicating guinea worm. And when I say close to eradicating, I mean in 1989, there were over 900,000 cases of guinea worm in 16 different countries. As of 2016, there are a total of 25 cases in three countries. Wow. So once again, thanks to the World Health Organization for publishing these statistics. But we have since learned that humans are not the only carriers of guinea worm. And cases have now been seen in dogs. And this is as of August 2016 um, when they – shortly after they made the announcement that guinea worm would be soon eradicated in humans – Dogs started showing up with guinea worms emerging from their legs. And unfortunately, in order to continue to eradicate that, you have to not only get these feral dogs, but also people's pets. And they have to be tied up for a total of two weeks away from water so they cannot contaminate the water and the worms can get out. It is treated exactly the same in animals as in humans, which is a lot of waiting. And if you have ever tried to put a stick in front of a dog and told him to just wait and not touch it. And you imagine you have to do that every single day with a giant worm crawling out of the dog. You can imagine where this may put a dent in the eradication efforts. Yeah, and, and they don't have the money or the resources to get the giant plastic cones. Uh, Josh, I think a really, really good point about eradicating the guinea worm. The guinea worm is a zoonosis. It affects animals as well as humans. Now, smallpox was an easy eradication, not easy, but it was a much easier eradication because it only affects human beings. So we're the only known reservoir of this disease. Um, When you get to things that I work on here in the laboratory, like toxoplasma, which will affect every single mammal and some birds even, this is nigh on impossible to eradicate. But when you have a, a zoonotic disease like anywhere which can affect you know a a few of your animals as well as humans that means you've got to get you know this kind of very very close tight control on every single species that the worm can infect including human beings so that amplifies the problem that much more and that's really the key to eradication you have in order to be a candidate for eradication, you have a couple of criteria that are very, very rigorous. So the in order to say an organism is potentially eradicatable, uh-huh. it has to have – it can't have a non-human reservoir or if it has a non-human reservoir, that infection has to be an easily identifiable species. And when I'm talking about a reservoir, I mean who can the infection hide out in? Right. If it can hide out in something like mosquitoes – you're going to have a really hard time eradicating it. <laughs> oh, so yeah. but, if it can only, yeah. but if it can only hide out in humans and, say, giraffes, very easy to narrow that down. <laughs> okay? We um, want to know something that only affects human beings and giraffes. That's oh, awesome. It'll be interesting. I'm sure there's something out there. <laughs> None that I know of, honestly. If anybody knows, please write in because I will love you forever if you teach me about a disease that exclusively infects giraffes and human beings. Yeah, that's all the motivation I need. 
Well, of course, I was worried about that because I had the opportunity to kiss a giraffe, and we'll talk about that. We'll talk about that in our Just the Tip a little bit later. But So, you need an easily identifiable species and a non-human reservoir, which implies that you, know, the, you have enough information on how the disease is transmitted and its life cycle at the time you're going to try to eradicate it. Yeah. Then... Once you have that information, go ahead. No, no, no. Uh, so I, I think guinea worm here is a, a fantastic example. So you just identified what the non-human reservoir was, right, for our audience. Right. So the non-human reservoir is now dogs. Right. Um, so it's in humans and dogs. Yeah, and we've looked extensively to make sure that it's not parasitizing other uh, animals. Exactly. Now, you also need an efficient and practical intervention, such as a vaccine or an antibiotic, or in the case of guinea worm, a water filter, and a stick (laughs) that you need to interrupt transmission of the infective agent. So with guinea worm, by giving water filters, you interrupt the infection's ability to get into you. Now, studies of measles in the pre-vaccination era led us to the concept of a critical community size, how the size of a population below which a disease just can't circulate. You have to have a big enough population for a disease to get around. If your town is just you and Bob and you get sick, Bob's going to say, I'm going to avoid the heck out of you and the disease can't transmit. But if you get sick and it's you, Bob, and three million other people, some of them are going to keep that disease going. Right. Mm. And uh, in a lot of cases, it's kind of interesting. Uh, Just like in the elimination of an outbreak eradication can actually be a lot easier if the disease actually has a quick and easily identifiable course. So we're not talking about something that kind of smolders along. Uh, A great example, for instance, is HIV. You know, it, it, it can last forever in a host before the host knows that they're infected. But if you take something Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello HelloFresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com achieve today. For instance, like measles, everyone who catches measles gets sick, nearly everybody. It's, it's a very high infection rate. And then, you know, you have overt symptoms right away. So you point to that person and you say, that's a person who's sick. So you don't have a lot of these people walking around who are asymptomatic carriers because these are some of the hardest reservoirs to eliminate out of your population. Now, Santosh, it's very interesting that you brought up HIV because that provides us another great segue into the next disease to talk about. So now we've talked about a disease that has been eliminated. We've talked about a disease that is near to being eradicated. But what about diseases that are moving on to the endangered species list? Usually, (laughs) we're very concerned with keeping things off endangered lists yeah exactly yeah we we don't we want to save the california condor and the humpback whale yes but won't somebody think of the viruses (laughs) (laughs) fuck them all (laughs) and i say that uh not being a person who swears a lot that's very true you you are our disney (laughs) disney censored doctor it's very passionate (laughs) yeah 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 
honestly. They can all roast in hell. <laughs> so let's talk about a disease that's moving on to the endangered list. Then there's two, and they're at different levels of endangered. The first is the Ebola virus, which we now have an Ebola vaccine. So, Pros, do you remember the Ebola virus outbreak? Oh, yeah. Yeah, that was scary. Um, that was yeah, so the, not long ago either. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was 2000. It was in 2014 in the West African country of Guinea. Yeah. <laughs> as long as we're uh, moving on from Guinea worms. We're really, we don't want to harp on this. It's actually a beautiful region of the world and we shouldn't vilify it like this, but yeah. There, no, 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 not at all. Yeah. Um, so <laughs> Ebola and again, we're not we're not going to talk too much about the disease themselves. That's that's for our around the world in eighty plagues series, which is coming soon. Another episode, but Ebola was during a two thousand fourteen outbreak a very big health concern, and as soon as it started affecting Westerners, we became deeply invested in finding <laughs> a prevention or a cure, yeah. and. A vaccine has already been reported, and the way it works is made up of a vesicular virus, a stomatitis virus that harms cattle but doesn't make humans sick. And they take that virus and they give it a shiny new facelift and make it look like an Ebola virus by using a couple surface proteins. So you basically get infected with a cattle uh, a cattle virus that looks to the body like an Ebola virus. It's beautiful technology. It's really, really yeah, gorgeous. Impressive. Um, in, in this case, we're using the, the pox virus, the, the little cattle virus, as a carrier, as kind of a little vector for the antigens. Those are the things that stimulate your immune system uh, that are kind of fingerprints of the Ebola virus. And so, you know, you present it, it, you know, in the the form of a harmless little guy, but the body recognizes those antigens as bad. It rips rips apart the poor cattle virus, but that thing's toast anyway. Mm -hmm. And then what's left behind is the memory, the immune memory of the antigens from Ebola. So if you encounter it again, boom, attack. Exactly. Now, here's here's why I'm talking about this being endangered. This virus has been 100% effective against Ebola, but there's a catch. Yeah. There's always a catch. Yeah. <laughs> it's only effective against one of the five subtypes of the virus. It only works against the Zaire Ebola virus. It doesn't work against the other four. No, it's right. kind of similar to the flu vaccine, isn't it? Well, yeah, exactly. So with the the flu vaccine, we're able to get a fingerprint on, you know, things like H1N1 and then the pandemic strain, what we think of as influenza A and influenza B. But there certainly are other flu subtypes out there that... This vaccine doesn't necessarily cover, but we kind of cross our fingers and say that those flu viruses are not as deadly to human beings. But you bring up an excellent point, Praz, in that the flu virus is usually several of the most common flus in each year's vaccine. And we're just saying these are the ones that we think are most likely to get people, but there's over a hundred different kinds of flu out there, which is why you can get the vaccine and still get sick. Right. right. And other respiratory With, illnesses that like to mimic the flu because they're, you know, pretenders. Exactly. So the Zaire Ebola virus is a hundred percent, you know, endangered. We have an effective treatment that will stop this disease or prevent it in its tracks. But the other four who like to pal around with it are not impressed. So the people in Guinea are trialing a new vaccine technique. So not a new vaccine, but they're trying a new technique of vaccinating people that's known as ring vaccination. You want to hazard a guess as to how that works, Pros? Ring vaccination. Basically, anyone who has the disease comes in contact with people around them. Let's say if you're in a big population, and you have something, you're most likely to spread it to the people 
who are close surrounding you in close proximity. And so what they do is they don't just um, give the vaccine to the person who's sick, but they give it to the other people around him who have the potential to get sick before they actually have symptoms. Is that right? Exactly. And you can think of it like that movie, The Ring. You watch the, you watch the ring, and within seven days you die. Well, this is the opposite. You watch the ring. You get one person gets this infection. And all of a sudden, the CDC and the WHO and health officials swoop down and circle around to every single person that that infected person knows. Their mailman, their children, their friends, their local, you know, their local produce market, anyone they've come in contact with, and all of those people get vaccinated within seven days so you can help prevent spread of infection. Or your money back. <laughs> Travel Medicine Podcast does not guarantee money back. <laughs> <laughs> How can it work if it's not effective against the virus, though? Well, because they're hoping that in the few cases where we still are seeing outbreaks, they don't know what the commonality. So when you get infected with Ebola, it's really tough to say, do you have type 1, 2, 3, 4, 5? Because they're not presenting terribly different. You don't know what flavor you have until you've caught it. Gotcha. Makes sense. So they vaccinate everyone with the hope that this is one of the ones that has either 100% effectiveness or that they can see a dent in any kind of of effectiveness against the other subtypes. And this ring vaccination technique have has actually been very promising, especially in these poorer nations, because people live in small communities. So it's very easy to vaccinate everyone in the area and prevent it from getting out of the village or out of the area you want to keep it contained in. Now, this drug does lead to some unwelcome side effects, such as joint pain and headaches, which doesn't sound too bad in the midst of an outbreak, but being a doctor, I know that's going to put off the general population from getting vaccinated when they feel healthy. So if you're not in imminent danger, most people are like, ah, I feel like I'm good enough. I don't want a headache. I'd rather risk getting Ebola. There you go. Hemorrhagic fever is probably a little bit worse, though, I have to say. It's, it's a hugely promising result. And again, you know, we're looking further studies are underway to investigate the vaccine's effects on children and people who are immunocompromised, like those with HIV. And the vaccine's backers are actually hoping to have it submitted for a license by the end of 2017. And this study was published in The Lancet uh, in December. So it actually just came out end of December, beginning of January. So this is a very, very new study that is in a well-respected journal. Nice. There you go. And now we've talked about a near-eradicated disease, an eliminated disease, an endangered disease. Let's look at diseases on the run. Ones who are maybe just feeling a little bit uncomfortable with their situation these days. And that brings us to a surprising guest... HIV. Whoa. A 44-year-old gentleman in England is possibly the first person in history to be completely cured of HIV, and that is evidenced by the virus is completely undetectable in his blood. Would this patient happen to be in Berlin? The Berlin patient is, you know... I don't know if this is the same as the Berlin patient. So, Santosh, why don't you tell us about the Berlin patient? Yeah, uh, this was a, a wonderful, wonderful finding, and it was almost completely serendipitous. Um, let me tell you guys a little bit about the situation with HIV before I start. So, with HIV, you can have uh, the virus latching onto certain little antigens, okay, on the surface of your uh, cells, and, and that's how it gets inside, okay? So one of these antigens is called CCR5, okay? And it, it has to, it, think of HIV landing like a little tripod, like a little tripod coming on down. And so it'll latch onto CD4, it'll latch onto a toll-like receptor and CCR5. Some people, believe it or not, guys, have a mutation in CCR5 that does not allow HIV to latch on. They are immune to HIV. Mm -hmm. Holy crap. It's a small percentage of people, but they're out there. 
So this is what happened. Our Berlin patient had HIV, developed leukemia a little bit later on. All right. Now he's in a bad situation. However, he needed a bone marrow transplant. Interesting. He got a bone marrow transplant, and the match he got, the donor happened to have this mutation in his blood cells, CCR5 mutation. This man gets his bone marrow transplant. The leukemia gets treated, gets cured, and all of a sudden, in the midst of all of this, He's off of HIV medications for whatever reason, and they notice there is no HIV circulating in this man's bloodstream. Wow. What the hell? <laughs> this is insane, right? So this this was, a, you know, people were losing their minds over this, and rightfully so. This person had been cured of HIV. And we've been trying to actually replicate this circumstance ever since then, you know, trying to find donors who have, you know, uh, a, uh, the CCR5 mutation and all these kinds of things. And believe it or not, we haven't been able to find anyone so far who has gotten a transplant like this and who has cleared their HIV. So was it a fluke? Was it something real? We don't know yet. We're researching as fast as we can. Well, I've got some even more exciting news for you, Santosh. Yeah. You and I are not talking about the same person. Okay. okay. So your Berlin patient. Yeah. Your Berlin patient is different from my London patient uh -huh. because this London patient was treated with an actual therapy and a team from five different universities in the UK is conducting trials on 50 people with this new technique. So currently... Anti-retroviral therapies or anti-HIV therapies target active T-cells which are infected with HIV. The T-cells are one of the cells in your body that help fight off infection, okay? And when T-cells are in, what happens is HIV gets into the body, T-cells see them, they go and they gobble up and attack the HIV and then they, HIV destroys them from within, or the HIV goes to sleep and the T-cells say, well, job well done, time to go back home, everything's fixed forever. But antiretroviral therapies right now can target active T-cells infected with HIV, but they can't treat dormant T-cells, ones where that HIV virus is just hiding and not reproducing, which means that patients' bodies continue to reproduce the virus. So this new therapy that is being trialed in the UK works in two stages. The first one is a vaccine to help the body recognize any HIV-infected cells, which will activate the cells to go attack them. And this, and this is paired with a drug called Varinostat, which activates those dormant T cells. It forces the HIV virus in the dormant T cells to wake up and start replicating. And then the first drug attacks all those active cells. So you imagine the first part is a snooze alarm to wake everybody up. And then you come on in, guns blazing, and knock down everybody who is up and awake, and poof, HIV gone. Now, again, this is a clinical trial, and the results have not yet been published, but they have had limited success with the patients they are currently working with in the sense that after this treatment, virus has been undetectable in their blood. Wow, that's really beautiful. Big milestone. It is. So we we will have seen in our lifetimes both the rise of HIV and potentially also its fall. Yay. You know, that's an entire viral empire in a single generation. Yeah, what an empire. It really was raging when it first was rising. Absolutely, absolutely. So, but you are correct in that only one person has ever been documented 100% cured, and that is the Berlin patient, Timothy Brown, and he was mentioned and did an interview in the Telegraph, Shout and out he was found to be cured. Yes, <laughs> and he is uh, known to be, he, this was in 2008 that he was found to have been cured, I believe. Right. Yeah, it's, so. we, we hope every single time pray that we're, we're going to, you know, keep finding, uh, you know, cures like this. I, I, 
personally, I love these stories. I absolutely love them. Yeah. Yeah. Always... So, go ahead. I think we all sort of love them to some degree, you know? Oh, yeah. <laughs> it feels good to get a victory, doesn't it? Yeah. It can happen often. But... Win for the home team. Yeah. Yeah, we root, root, root for the home team. When they don't win... It's a shame. Yeah. It is a shame. That's that's the song for the Super Bowl, right? I'm good at sports. There you go. Yeah, you're so good at sports. Because <laughs> it's one, two, three touchdowns, you're out at the old basket hockey game. I'm pretty sure that's one of those. Basket comes hockey, through. Basket hockey is very important. <laughs> yes, yes, basket hockey. So, Well, that that brings us to the end of diseases that have been eradicated eliminated and otherwise endangered but before we get to our just the tip i think we should briefly mention one of the diseases that is fighting back and trying to put us on the endangered list and santosh i know you've been wanting to talk about this for a few weeks the rise of the invincible bug oh gosh oh absolutely so we've got uh, we, we've been doing this to ourselves for a while, I have to say. There's really no easy way to do it. We have been suffering through so many antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and it's plain and simply because we've been given we've been giving antibiotics when we shouldn't be. Um, there's no nice way to put it. So. Here we have finally gotten to in Arizona. It was very sad that we found out that a woman uh, who had traveled abroad uh, came back home and found she was infected with a bacteria that literally was resistant to every single treatment we could throw at it. And, you know, this isn't some or half or anything like that. This is all of them. Absolutely all of them. Um, yeah, it, it was really, really terrible to think about and to consider. And um, we knew it would happen eventually. Um, we knew that we weren't going to get away from this. Um, but, yeah. Yeah, so... So now there exists a drug or a bug out there that is resistant to every existing in-use antibiotic, something that we can do nothing about. However, we have talked in previous journal clubs about some of the new non-antibiotic treatments that are in the works, and we can only hope that those do make it to market sooner rather than later. Right. Absolutely. Um, But let's move on to just the tip. You know, it's been a while since I've been able to do a Just the Tip that was personal or that I had had a chance to visit, you know, myself. And the last one, of course, was the very close-by and convenient Museum of Anesthesiology in Schaumburg, Illinois. But that's not terribly exotic and maybe doesn't appeal to the average person. I think it's... Well, of course you do, Proz. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you'd find that place a gas and a half. <laughs> but but I want to talk today about just the tip. Since we've spent so much time being so cruel to Africa, talking about all these different infections taking place in it and that we're trying to eliminate, I wanted to bring up something that was very positive in Africa and one of the best experiences of my life. So a couple years back, I had the wonderful opportunity to go on safari, and one of the places I stopped was Nairobi, Kenya, which is a rapidly developing city, um, you know, certain to become a player on the world stage probably within the next 10 years. And, of course, you have all the things you've seen in the Bonds movies and action movies and the ramshackle huts and the torn-down buildings and the dirt roads, but you also have a little bit of old British colonialism that's now been resumed or retaken by Africans. And one of these places is known as Giraffe Manor (laughs) on the outskirts of Nairobi, Kenya. Now, when I say Giraffe Manor, you might be thinking, well, what do I need to do with a bunch of aristocratic giraffes? Well, let me tell you, 
this was started as a giraffe sanctuary by a very rich British person who loved animals. And then she died and left it to the locals to continue on her dream. Giraffe Manor is a hotel that you can stay in on this reserve that is not a safari park. It is an actual conservation and it works on treating giraffes. It has 12 Rothschild giraffes. All right, this is a rare breed. There's only three different kinds of giraffes. There's the Maasai giraffes, there's the Rothschilds, which are what you the Rothschilds are the ones you usually see in zoos in the United States and around. They're the most common. And there's a couple others. So Giraffe Manor has 12 of these as well as a few others which freely roam the grounds around the manor, and even better, they poke their heads into the hotel rooms that you can stay in. They will come up and explore while you are eating out on the patio. They'll be grazing from the trees, see what you're doing, and walk over. And even better, when they do walk over to explore, the employees of Giraffe Manor come out and they hand you buckets of what look like little food pellets, and the giraffes will bend down and gently lick or eat the pellets from your hand. Now, this is exciting enough, and already well worth a trip to Nairobi and a stay in this hotel. But if they see, if the staff sees that you're brave enough or excited enough or just plain foolhardy enough to go beyond placing your hand in front of a giraffe for it to bend its long neck down. They will next tell you to slowly place one of these pellets, which are fairly large, in between your lips and lean forward, and the giraffe will will flick its long black tongue out and slowly take the pellet from you, letting you kiss a giraffe. Now, you two probably have some safety and hygiene concerns that... I clearly did not. I was like, I can kiss a what now? I turned into a giant giraffe slut. Just gave it away to any giraffe that even looked at me casually. I have I have Frenched one of these long you know, it's just giving me the tongue right to right to the face. Where are your standards, boy? Right? What can I say? I like tall women. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Was it, a, was now, it a female giraffe? I don't know. Do you know? <laughs> it, well, I was very giraffe friendly. I didn't discriminate. No, this is, yeah. But my first giraffe kiss was was a lovely lady. Aww. And I learned because afterwards, when someone wrote up, aren't you worried about what kind of sexually transmitted infections you can get from a giraffe? <laughs> Which is the fun in traveling with with non-medical people sure, because sure. of course you're not going to get a sexually transmitted infection just by kissing yes. from a giraffe from a giraffe <laughs> which just a, a small aside and there are sexually transmitted infections or zoonoses which can be transmitted sexually through acts of bestiality um we won't get into it right now but um uh, don't... Kissing is not bestiality. No, it's it's not. It's not bestiality, and uh, I advise people to uh, make love only to their own species. There, I said it. <laughs> I'm not taking it back. <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't judge you nearly as harshly as Santosh, for the record. Yeah. <laughs> well, thank you, Praz. So I did, however, learn as a result of this that the saliva of giraffes is antiseptic and can be used to help treat, similar to how dogs will lick themselves and dogs have a little bit of antiseptic saliva as well. Giraffes have some powerful antibacterial substances. So even when they're kissing you, you are being protected. Wow. So. Go take a chance now. I will tell you, this experience is not cheap. Oh, it is, however, worth every penny. And when I'm talking about every penny, you have to make reservations about a year in advance in order to get in for even two nights, which wow. is how long we were able to stay in this place. We heard about it. We said, giraffes come into the room. You can feed them from your window Absolutely. We didn't even know about the physical intimacy we could get with giraffes. <laughs> so go on safari if you have, but if you happen to be in Nairobi, Kenya, you should absolutely 100% visit Giraffe Manor and look it up on videos. It's a good time. And that is my just the tip. 
Yeah. Um, after you're just the tip, Josh, I'd like to let everybody out there who's listening know, um, listen, especially if you're here within the United States, it's kind of a turbulent time to connect with, uh, you know, if you're a healthcare professional listening to doctors or scientists overseas. And, uh, you know, this this topic is near and dear to my heart as an infectious disease doctor's eradication. Um, I know that Josh, you as a traveler, Praz, you as a traveler, um, you guys love it when communities come together to cure global illnesses like measles and polio and uh, even guinea worm. Um, so I encourage anybody out there, you know, if, if you still want to, if you want to contribute your money, your time, go ahead, jump on who.int, look up your favorite infectious disease, (laughs) and take a look at the eradication campaign. Um, The hot ones right now are uh, Dracula, I I love saying this word, Dracunculiasis. Dracunculiasis (laughs) Medinaisis. Say it like a boy, eh? (laughs) Dracunculiasis is the the actual disease of getting that guinea worm causes so that's a that's a good one right now to join eliminating polio is a good one to join eliminating cholera um, especially in places like india and afghanistan and uh, measles and you can join money vaccination um, you know in places like guinea with water control uh, which is really fantastic so um, yeah jump on who.int See if you want to contribute, if you want to help, um, because, hey, wherever we live, we're still a citizen of this planet. And uh, anything we can do to make lives better in our home country or abroad, I think it's a wonderful thing to do. So go for it, guys. So that, of course, brings us to the end of this episode. Once again, thank you to our Patreon patrons, specifically Rebecca Gamble. And anybody who donates at the $5 level or above gets access to special minisodes, which have included excerpts from that time I was in a heavy metal band, as well as the laughing epidemic of Tanzania. <laughs> oh, I thought you were going to talk about our laughing epidemic when we could... Well, our laughing epidemic yeah. too, but that's coming next week in a special Valentine's Day Journal Club. Oh yeah, guys, tune in and listen with someone you love or not. Or listen with someone you want to love. Yeah. Because who doesn't love who doesn't love laughing? Listen, guys. I'm laughing we're gonna you. be talking with myself and Dr. Josh, which means we're gonna be talking about sexually transmitted infections and weird penis stuff. So I can't think of a better way to attract that special someone that you've had your eye on for the past few weeks. And then show them how normal yours is by comparison. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, you can't get much better than that. <laughs> Can we go up from there? And let's go to the outro. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. You can reach us on Facebook, on Squarespace, on Twitter, on Patreon, anywhere podcasts are downloaded. We'd love to hear your reviews, your ratings. And we would love for you to support us spiritually, emotionally, and financially. Included in the show notes are a whole bunch of places you can do that. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. This show is produced by me. (laughs) Me help. (laughs) With a lot of help from all my co-hosts and those of you who submit stories. Thank you very much. And until next time, as always, happy travels. Bye, guys. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. 
let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.